welcome everyone. Again, welcome to our entire school community and also to anyone who's watching us uh, in our extended Mercersburg family, uh, parents and alumni. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am Julia Maurer, class of 1990, Mercersburg class of 1990, and I serve the school as the Associate Head of School for School Life. In a normal year, we would be gathering as a part of our family and alumni weekend and bring everyone together in the Hale Fieldhouse for a panel discussion featuring distinguished alumni who are living Mercersburg's mission of leading and serving in their communities. This year, things look a little different. With the transition to a virtual session though, it has given us the wonderful opportunity to welcome more of our families and alumni to participate in our school meeting program. So thank you to everyone for joining us. This year, students, faculty, and staff have been participating in programming around the theme of making a difference. Making a difference can be defined in many ways. It could be a frontline healthcare worker or a social justice advocate. And today we are joined by two alumni who have chosen to affect change in their communities through a political avenue. In a year that is full of political agendas, Mercersburg Academy cultivates an environment of civil discourse and inspires one another to embrace the great liberties of our country. And today I'm happy to introduce our two panelists. Nancy Abudu, class of 1992, is the deputy legal director for the Southern Poverty Law Center's Voting Rights Practice Group. In this role, she leads a team in protecting and strengthening the voting rights of minority communities and other politically vulnerable populations. She has litigated a variety of civil rights and civil liberties issues, including proof of citizenship and voter photo ID laws and has pushed for greater enforcement of federal laws, including Voting Rights Act and Help America Vote Act. She received her BA from Columbia University and her JD from Tulane Law School. Sam Rogers, Mercersburg class of 2011, works as an assistant district attorney in Madison County, New York. He is running on the Republican ticket to be a state senator in central New York this November. After graduating from Mercersburg, Sam was offered a full scholarship to play football at Syracuse University. At Syracuse, he started in 50 consecutive games and was elected team captain for the 2014 season. Sam's service and leadership to his community was recognized by being named as, as a recipient of the top ACC Top Six Service Award, and he was named a class marshal for his graduating class. In addition to his degree from Syracuse, Sam earned his JD from Cornell University. Thank you to our panelists for taking the time to share your stories with us today. Today's panel will be moderated by current Mercer faculty member, David Bell. And to all of you who are watching, if you have a question for our panelists, please feel free to use the Q&A button and I will feed those questions to our panelists and to Mr. Bell. Mr. Bell, take it away. Thank you, Dr. Maurer, and welcome everyone to today's school meeting. So there's no escaping the fact that we're coming down to the final stretch of what has been a very divisive political campaign. Today, we wanna to focus not on the politics and personalities surrounding the current election, but on the political process itself and what it means to be a participant in that process. Voting is the most basic expression of that participation. And I want to remind us all of something that MJ Hager said last year about voting during a Monday evening talk in our chapel. Ms. Hager is a former Air Force pilot, the author of the book, Shoot Like a Girl, and a candidate for the US Senate in Texas this year. She said words to the effect of, you should never expect others to stand up for your civil liberties. They are yours to defend, and voting is something you should not take for granted. 
Sam and Nancy don't take this for granted, and they are both out there in their communities urging people to stand up, exercise their right to vote, and participate in our democratic system. And we appreciate them taking time out of those activities to join us here today. We have come up with several questions to get the conversation started, and students in my two history classes have sent in some questions. But as Dr. Mara said, I want to encourage all of you watching to type a question into the Q&A if there's something you would like to ask our panelists. But as we said, this isn't about the current candidates and we don't want questions about who you're going to vote for. It's more about political, the political process and how to be an active part of our democratic system. I don't know how many questions we'll be able to address this afternoon, but we will do the best we can. And I'd like to start with a question that several people put forward in one form or another. Okay, Nancy and Sam, we've heard a little bit about your current work, but we're interested in the path that led you to where you are today. What made you first realize you had an interest in politics? And let's start this first question with Nancy, please. Sure, well, first I wanna thank you and all of the organizers of this event and very nice to be partnering with you, Sam. Even though this is a nonpartisan conversation, I think the fact that you brought kind of different people from the different political aisles shows that we can still have a very civil, robust conversation about the importance of civic participation. So for me, like many people, it starts with my family. My father and my parents are originally from Ghana, West Africa. My father was very involved in the Pan-African movement and liberating South Africa from apartheid and also dealing with post-colonial African issues, brought that with him to the United States and instilled that importance of civic participation and voting in me and my sister. And so when I became of age, I cast my ballot the first time absentee. I was very involved when I was in college in political movement, student movement issues, and continued that through law school. I'll say that when I graduated from law school, I started out with a big firm and thought that that was going to be my career path and found my way in the nonprofit world where I've spent a good chunk of my career and very happy. So there are a lot of paths that you can take to kind of get you to a similar road. I'd like to second and uh, say thank you to everyone for joining. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to uh, speak with you, although virtually I wish I could see all of you and uh, communicate that way, but excited to be here. My path um, to where I'm doing now and running for the New York State Senate, um, it's nothing I really intended to do from the beginning. Uh, like many of you students out there, uh, when you graduate Mercersburg and then you go to college and you graduate college, you'll hit a point when you graduate where you have to make a decision, what is it that I actually want to do? You know, you're, you're kind of going through high school, I got to get through this, but in college, I got to get through this. And then there's a point where you get to decide. I uh, played football at Syracuse and I wanted to play in the NFL. That's um, kind of what my goal was. That's what my tunnel vision was set on. And I had some pretty cool experiences trying out for NFL teams after I graduated college. However, after doing this for a year, and realizing I could keep trying and that might take three, four years, um, I started to think about, well, what is it that I really want to do? And I realized that as a football player at Syracuse, I had a really large platform to reach the community here in Central New York. And when I really analyzed it, that's what I like to do. Football was just an avenue to do that. 
So I started talking to mentors of mine of, you know, if, if this isn't going to work out through football, how can I build my own platform to do the same kind of work as a professional? And that led me to law school. And uh, like Nancy, there was a time where I thought maybe the big, big law job was, was something I'd want to do. And that would have led me down to New York City or maybe Washington, D.C. And um, I was fortunate enough. I met my wife at Syracuse, who was on the soccer team. And we had a house in central New York. We love central New York. And we decided to stay and we want to be a part of a group of people in central New York that are staying, serving the community. And that's kind of what led me into to running for office in this seat. All right. Well, for the next question, we'll we'll start with Sam. Um, so this again, there are a couple of people who asked uh, this type of question. Was there anything that happened at Mercersburg that helped inspire you towards the work you're doing today? Or was there some other moment in your life that prompted you to advocate for others who have less of a voice? So I'll start by talking about Mercersburg and how it kind of led me to, to where I am today. And, um, you know, no one on this panel has paid me to say this, but I will say Mercersburg just completely changed my life when it came to my pursuit academically. And I say that, you know, honestly, thinking about my high school career and where I was, I would have been fine if I went to another school, but Mercersburg challenged me in a way that I never would have experienced at a different school. And, and I'll remember this, you know, I was in uh, Mr. Bell's world history class, my first semester at Mercersburg. And I'll never forget the first assignment, uh, one of the first assignments in that semester, this DBQ, document-based questions. And I remember being in my dorm, just like looking at these questions, thinking of the instructions and just like being so frustrated because I just couldn't figure it out. And it was like the hardest I ever had to push myself in school. You know, I had always felt that in athletics and I knew what training meant and practicing meant on the football field or on the baseball field. But I just hadn't reached that point in school. And it was through that process that, you know, just fighting with the information. I actually had a chance to talk to Mr. Bell. Um, I think it was now two years ago about that. And, you know, law school is almost all DBQ. That's kind of what law school is, is, you know, looking at cases and grouping them and matching them together, how they all work together and how you can make an argument that they all fit together. And it's just amazing to think back to that time when I was so frustrated, but I learned the process of how to figure something out academically. And at the end of my first year at Mercersburg, uh, my dad asked me, my dad's a graduate of Mercersburg, also uh, class of 79. He asked me, so what did you learn? What's the biggest takeaway from your first year at boarding school, right? And I told him, I said, well, I'm not afraid of any academic situation. I know that I can go in, I can step in, and I might not be the smartest in the room. I might not know all the information, but I've learned the process to figure it out. And that mindset and that attitude and that confidence is what led me to really pursue, you know, excellence when I got to Syracuse and what gave me the, the confidence to say, I'm going to go to Cornell Law School. And so those experiences at Mercersburg just completely changed the direction of, of my life. And I'm very thankful for that. Yeah, you know, I was challenged in Mercersburg academically, of course. I think that's a, a common theme just in terms of the rigor of the curriculum at the school. But I think culturally for me, having come to Mercersburg as a junior 
And so entering the school in the middle of my high school career and then coming from a very um, culturally diverse home environment and then to Mercersburg, which at that time was still pretty homogenous. So there were issues of cultural competency that were lacking from some of the students and, and maybe even from some of the faculty and administration. And thankfully, I had the confidence to speak up for myself and for my classmates to try to raise awareness as well as come up with some solutions that could be implemented to address situations that illustrated sometimes that lack of cultural competency. So I think that having Mercersburg and having the experience of what it really means, for example, to have free speech rights and an open forum for the exchange of ideas, for sure I learned that and experienced that firsthand at Mercersburg and have carried that experience with me as I continue with my career. All right, thank you both for that and telling my students they should do more DBQs. Um, speaking of our students, um, and Nancy, we'll start this question with you. Um, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were a student back at Mercersburg? Um, well, I think in, in reflecting on this question is number one, just how big the universe of opportunities really is. And Mercersburg provided that in terms of, you know, after school programs and volunteer opportunities and then opportunities during the summer. And it was just really a reminder to me that if you're not in the right place and you don't have access to information, then you don't know all that you can do and you don't have the full opportunity to experiment with things that might or might not, might not work for you. So I would say seeking out opportunities, experimenting with different things and trying to figure out, give yourself the room and space and patience to figure out what really works and resonates with you. I would answer that by saying, you know, the tons of things. I, I feel like uh, you got to understand that it's all a process, what you're doing now, what you're learning at Mercersburg. Um, you know, I think in high school, you're very focused on your grades and getting to college um, and getting to where you want to go in college, which is all um, well and good. But you need to understand as well that, you know, the learning process that you're learning, you're going to keep with you your whole life. And it all builds on each other. I think one thing I'm kind of realizing now and what I'm doing is I'm, I'm so time crunched and stressed and there's so much going on. Um, and I think life just keeps getting busier and you just get better and better and better at handling it. Um, so I know right now in high school, there's, there's chaos happening, but you, um, handling that right now as high school students is going to better equip you when you're college students and there's a little more added on, or when you're a law student or a graduate student or a early professional, there's a little more added on and you're just continuing to build and build and build and, um, you know, just always keep learning, always keep learning and refining your process of learning. And I think that's what Mercersburg um, offers so well is just refining that process. When you get to college, you'll look around and see that, you know, you have some disciplines that some other students don't. 
You know, you know what it means to sit down and take two hours to finish your homework because that's what you need to do to learn. And, you know, just adding onto that process and just understanding um, that it's all working towards giving you a better capacity to handle what, what comes next um, is, is what I kind of wish I would have known while I was going through it. All right, so back to Sam for the start of this question. Dr. Maurer mentioned that our theme for school this year is making a difference. Can you give us some specific examples of how the work that you do allows you to make a difference in your community? Yeah, so I'll answer that in, in two parts, mainly because I'm kind of doing two separate things right now. I, I'm uh, running for office, um, which, so I guess how that makes a difference is when I decided I was going to run, I made a very intentional decision that by doing this, you know, no matter the outcome of the election on November 3rd, we are going to do something that we can be proud of, that the community will uh, be inspired by. Um, and that's how I wanted to run my campaign. And that's how I decided, you know, I'm going to do this. So we've been doing a lot and, you know, running for office means you have to be very involved. So uh, this year has been tough to be involved and get out and do things, but, you know, any chance there is to get to a, a homeless shelter or give out or volunteer, you know, I've taken that opportunity because I want to show people and lead by example that, you know, this is, this should be important to us. Um, here in central New York, uh, during the pandemic, a lot of restaurants have closed down. Um, what that means is there's a lot of dairy farmers out here that have extra milk. They used to sell it to restaurants. Well, they're not buying anymore. So as you know, milk is perishable. You got to do something with it. Um, so there are some groups, some nonprofits uh, that bought up all this milk, and then we were able to just distribute it for free to people. So one thing that I did in central New York is the district I'm running for has a big dairy farm part of the district, but then it also has the city of Syracuse. So I use that as an opportunity. How can we bring those groups together? We have dairy farmers with milk. We have uh, some people in Syracuse that need milk and food and dairy products. So we're able to do, you know, free handouts like that. And, you know, just, just stuff like that and stuff that can be inspiring on the campaign trail is, is something that I really wanted to focus on. Uh, the second part is as an assistant district attorney, I'm working as a prosecutor in uh, New York County. And, you know, I make a huge difference in, in that role. I'm, I'm speaking to, to victims of crimes. I'm speaking to lawyers and really um, determining, you know, I'm, I'm new, so I have you know, different misdemeanor cases, but how should these cases be handled? How should we go about um, disposing of these cases? And a lot of that is, you know, what's best for one, the people of New York, who I'm representing as the prosecutor, but two, the defendant, so we don't see this person again. So we can help them, you know, is it mental health? Is it counseling? Is it substance abuse? What can we use? What tools do we have at our disposal to make sure that we help these people, um, you know, get out of the court system? So I'm very fortunate to be able to have as my full-time job a position with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which was originally founded to really bankrupt the Ku Klux Klan and other hate and extremist groups in the South. 
and then use those victories to really address the systemic problems that result in the class and racial and ethnic divisions that we still see all over the country, but especially in the deep South where I'm based. And so in terms of the work that I do, I'm very happy that SPLC invested up to $30 million in election protection efforts, not just for this election, but through the next couple of cycles. And we've been giving that money through grant making process to really educate voters so that they connect the dots to understand that political participation doesn't just end once you cast a ballot. That once people are elected to office, it is our responsibility to remind them that they've been hired to perform a job. And therefore there is an employee employment relationship um, that exists and that it is our responsibility as voters to make sure that they are held accountable throughout their term of office so that when it comes time for re-election, we actually have something to look to to see what their record has been. And so I'm very proud that I've been a part of that in terms of not just working on voting rights issues through the courts, which I do a lot of, but also in terms of public education and legislative advocacy and that we're seeing that now in terms of the record number of people who've registered, people who've requested vote by mail ballots. We started early voting in Atlanta, where I live, on Monday, and you already saw the first day of early voting lines up to three hours in some places. And so although I don't, I'm not happy that people are standing in line that long, it's evidence that our, our job, what we're doing is working. People are hearing us and they're acting on the information we're providing. Thank you guys for that. Um, so you both have been to college, you both have law degrees probably there are students here thinking, well, sure, they can make a difference. But do you have advice for our students? And we'll start with Nancy on this question. Are there things that you think our students could do right now to make a difference? Well, first, if you are eligible to register and vote, you should register and vote if you haven't already. And for those of you who registered in time and eligible to vote in this uh, upcoming election, you should do so. And even if you're not eligible to vote, we've been encouraging students through a program we have called Teaching Tolerance to pledge to register people. So for example, students can pledge to make sure that every single eligible voter in their household is registered and that they vote. Even doing something like that, you're contributing greatly to the turnout and mobilization effort. I think the other thing you can do is really educate yourself on the issues. Young people have a serious stake, and perhaps some would say an even greater stake than some of us who are older, in the outcome of elections and the policies that are adopted and implemented eventually. And so there is no time or space for young people to remain silent. You have to speak up, you have to have your voice and your views heard, and hopefully, again, when we when I was talking about accountability, that you recognize that even if you're not a voter, you're still a member of your elected officials district and that person is still accountable to you in terms of schools and roads and transportation and other resources to help make your life as a young person better. So those are some of the things that I would suggest that you all consider in terms of being actively involved. 
And I would second uh, what Nancy said in terms of if you can vote, uh, take the steps to do that. Also educate on the issues that's um, just, you know, couldn't be said enough is to really get in there and learn. Don't let other people tell you what to think. Go in there and, and learn the information, look at it and try and determine what you actually think um, before you hear um, other people's opinion and them kind of trying to shape that for you. And then second, I would say in terms of making a difference as students at Mercersburg, I think, you know, I would encourage you to not be overwhelmed and think of that question as you got to do something big and go out there and, you know, run for office or do whatever it might be. But there's little things you can do every day that really make a difference in people's lives. So don't don't think that if you're not doing something big, you're not making a difference because you are. And, you know, it, it's as simple as, you know, just be nice to people, uh, you know, respect your professors, uh, be a, a good part of the Mercersburg community. And that will make a difference in people's lives. Sometimes you don't see it, but it does and it will. And don't discount that. Okay, I'm sure that both of you have had obstacles that appeared um, as you continued on the journey to where you are now. Um, can you share a story about uh, an obstacle that you overcame and, and how you overcame it? Sam, you, you get to go first. Yeah, so I'll talk about, um, you know, really in what I'm doing now is there's little mini obstacle fires every day that, you know, I got to wake up and figure out what we're going to do. You know, what's the news saying? What are people saying? What, you know, how are we fundraising? That sort of thing. Um, but I would say, you know, just there's a lot of obstacles more. I, I always go back to my athletic career and, you know, thinking of, of that sort of uh, thing. When I was trying out for the NFL, um, that's, that's really what I wanted to do. And I really felt the full spectrum of emotion during that time when, you know, I get called from the Green Bay Packers and it was one of the most exciting days of my life going out to Green Bay and trying out for the Packers. And then the next day seeing that they didn't choose me, they picked the other guy that was there. And like, you kind of just feel the roller coaster of, of hope and how that can, you know, crush someone. I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to take a step back and realize okay, you know, that was a great opportunity. I didn't, I didn't really lose anything from doing that. And it really set me on uh, the path to where I am now, because, you know, when I was a first year law student, I got a call from the Arizona Cardinals that said, Hey, we're looking um, for a long snapper, someone in your position, stay ready this week. And, you know, there I was again, all excited, you know, I'm going to get my opportunity to play in the NFL. And later that week, again, they didn't choose me. But at that point I was in law school already and I was okay with it because I really, really enjoyed what I was doing. And I started to see my career and what I could do with a law degree. Um, so, you know, those obstacles and those, they just help shape your path. They help you understand and kind of give you more conviction of why you're doing what you're doing. Um, so that would be my example. Yeah, for me, the most recent examples are just some of the court cases that I'm litigating right now, voting rights cases. Uh, some of you might have heard about a lawsuit against the state of Florida 
challenging the state's requirement that people with felony convictions pay all of their legal financial obligations in order to vote. It actually was a topic of discussion during uh, Supreme Court um, hearings uh, for the current nominee. And so we experienced a tremendous victory in the lower court, recognizing that such a requirement is a form of wealth-based discrimination and maybe even a poll tax. And then we get before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is our federal circuit, and then we experience a severe blow in terms of offending that entire decision. And so the, the obstacles are that, number one, the messaging, you get a win below in the courts, and then it's all about the victory and people are registering and, and, and voting as soon as they can. And then you get a loss that makes you have to change your messaging and educate people about the consequences if they are no longer eligible, given the court's decision, what those consequences might be. And you end up facing folks like Sam in terms of, you know, uh, criminal consequences down the road. So in terms of obstacles, you know, staying the course in your litigation, sticking or staying true to the legal principles upon which you're relying, even when judges don't agree with you, and reminding myself of the longer history in our courts in terms of things that were once legal and that our country has shifted to the point where we understand that there are just certain restrictions placed on people that are unconstitutional, unfair, and in some ways really unconscionable. And so those are the things that I grasp onto when facing the ups and downs of the litigation cycle. Okay, well, speaking of voting and potential obstacles to voting, one, one of the big issues we've heard about in recent months involves mail-in balloting. So I would ask both of you um, if you believe what you think about the process of mail-in voting and particularly, and this is for both, but it might be uh, more for Nancy with her work, um, will minority communities, this is a, this part of the question is from Clara Getty. Um, will minority communities benefit or suffer from so many people not voting in person? So mail-in balloting, and does that affect minorities one way or another? So Sam, you can go ahead first to, if you want to weigh in on that. I can weigh in briefly. Honestly, I'd probably rather hear what Nancy has to say. She's definitely more expert in this. I can share some observations that I've had. And I think, you know, one thing as a candidate, as a challenger, um, with all the mail-in voting going on that I've realized is while it's a great thing and it needs to happen based on the pandemic, it makes it a little hard for me because, you know, I'm going around trying to meet people and I've talked to many people that said, you know what, I already filled in and sent in my mail-in ballot, but I wish you would have talked to me two days ago. And to them, it's like, oh yeah, to me, it's like, no, I need that vote. But um, so it, there are um, some negative externalities to it. If if you can't, as a challenger, it's all about timing, getting to the people that you need to vote for you. Um, if they, you know, if you don't reach them in time, you don't reach them in time. And, and that makes it hard when people are casting ballots at the end of September for what's kind of a November election. But, you know, that's part of the process. And that's not something I can really control. And that's um, how I'm going about it. There is a lot of, a lot out there on mail-in ballot uh, voting. And my perspective is kind of like, 
you know, I'm doing all I can to just get to the finish line, get my message out there, stay positive, show people that I want to serve central New York and all of the court case, whatever's going to happen, this election, I, you know, my prediction is it's going to drag on for a while, but I have no control over that. And I'm just going to do what I can and then let them fall where they, where it falls. But I'd love to hear Nancy's more expert opinion on kind of everything that's going on with that. Sure. So my position on vote by mail or absentee voting from a professional perspective is data driven. There's no question that when people have an option to vote, that's not just on one day in the middle of the week that they turn out more. So that's why you have places like in Georgia where you can have about three weeks of early voting or places where you have Saturday and Sunday voting for folks who are religiously affiliated. Oftentimes for Sunday voting is called soul to the polls. We know that people who have family obligations or work obligations take advantage of absentee voting. As I said, the first way that I ever voted was absentee because I was away at school when the time came around. So for sure, we, it is a system of voting that we have to keep. And for us at Southern Poverty Law Center, it's just been about expanding those opportunities. So we unfortunately have, because of COVID, had to sue Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama to expand their vote by mail laws to make it possible for people who are having serious fear of contracting COVID to be able to vote that way, or at least to expand what we call curbside voting. So if you have your vote, you can drop it off without having to get in your car, an opportunity that has been made available to people who suffer from physical disabilities and have problems getting out and walking to the polling place. So I don't think the question today is really whether or not we're going to maintain vote by mail. It's really how expansive are those systems going to be and how are we going to make sure that there is no manipulation in the delivery, receipt, and counting of those ballots. Nancy, can I ask a follow-up question with that? Um, so in many countries, voting is done on a weekend uh, the, the big voting days on a weekend because people don't have to worry about getting time off work or have conflicts with, with that schedule. Is that something, um, well, first of all, in the early voting in, a, in your area, is that just a Monday through Friday thing or does it happen weekends? And is your organization at all involved in any push to expand voting to or change it to a weekend day? So early voting in Georgia can include Saturdays and Sundays, and that's something that we push because of what you noted is that for many people, voting on the weekend really is the most convenient. So in lieu of having that as the day, at least make it an option. In terms of, I think your second question had to do more with, I apologize. Um, well, it was really, are there attempts from your organization or others that you've heard to change our voting day from the first Tuesday to making the a Saturday be the primary voting day? So there was a bill and that and proposed, it's been introduced, but I don't think it's got, gotten through the Senate 
which is called the For the People Act. And that bill would have allowed for voting to be a national holiday. So whether it's during the week or on the weekend, everyone, for the most part, would have an opportunity to vote. So I think that's what, instead of trying to be focused on a particular day, trying to make whatever that day is convenient for the majority of people. All right, I'm going to take a question from the chat here, the Q&A. Uh, Mrs. Howe's class wants to know if either of you, and we'll start, I guess it's, I don't know who I'm starting with. I'll start with Sam. Um, uh, do you think voting should be mandatory? So I'd say uh, absolutely not. I, I, think it, I think you should vote, and I would encourage everyone to do it, but I think part of your right to vote is your right not to vote. I think kind of psychology wise, what I would say is if you're choosing not to vote, you really are voting just in a different way. Um, but I think that that right to vote that we have, I think if the government made it mandatory, that's an infringement on the the right to vote in itself. So it's one of those things where the outcome's a little averse to what you want, but I don't think it should be mandatory. Yeah, I would agree. I think if you look at voting through the lens of free speech or the First Amendment exercise, then of course it can't be mandatory because you can't force someone to say or do something, even if it is voting. But I agree with Sam that the reality is if you don't if you don't cast a ballot, you're still voting. Um, and your voice, of course, is not going to be as strong because you didn't have it formally heard. But what I would encourage is automatic voter registration where people can then opt out. So if you get your driver's license or you avail yourself of some other government service and you're eligible, that you are automatically registered and then you let them know if you don't want to be. So rather than mandatory voting, let's at least start with mandatory registration. All right. As I look at the clock, I think uh, we'll do one last question since it's already 3.33. Um, so here's a question from Maddie Dawson, and this could apply to either part of your job, Sam or, or Nancy. Um, what right now in this environment is the best part of your job and what is the most stressful part of your job? So we'll start with Nancy. Well, right now, the most stressful is deadlines. I've got a brief due in a case, and Sam will appreciate that, um, you know, meeting the court deadlines can be very stressful in and of themselves. So that's one point of stress is just the amount of responsibilities that you have to juggle in trying to satisfy multiple needs at the same time, trying to, you know, have a balance of work and life if you can. And so I would say, um, that's one challenge. But for sure, the best part of my job is that I get to work on voting rights issues all day. I get to meet with people in the community and hear from them, you know, why voting is important and then share that with others. And I get to keep these issues alive in the courts for, again, even if we're not successful right now, that at least we're building the foundation for success down the road. For me, I, I'll speak to the political running for office part of, you know, what's exciting and what's really stressful. What's exciting is getting out and meeting people and, you know, having events. That's what I like to do. That's what kind of drew me to the field is I love a podium and a microphone and a message I believe in and talking to people and meeting people. 
Um, that's been harder to do this year, pandemic wise. Um, but there are opportunities now. They're just not as big of groups. Um, but that's what I, I, that's what energizes me is getting around, listening to people, hearing their stories and, you know, telling them, I want to go represent you and give me a shot and I'll do a good job at it. I think the most stressful part and is easily just, you know, I'm, I very much believe that I would be a great representative for this district. And, you know, on paper, I'm an underdog. And so you're looking at it just knowing, you know, one, I look at it realistically. I'm running for state Senate. Not a lot of people are thinking about that race. You know, they're thinking about the presidential race. There are congressional seats, you know, a variety of other things. So the stress is how do I break through to them and tell them, regardless of what you think about for president, regardless of who you want to vote for Congress, if you don't take 20 seconds to think about who you're voting for in this race, you might miss an opportunity to elect someone that's going to do something really good for our area. And with that, it's, you know, how do you get that message out? We're going to be spending probably $80,000 in the next, you know, three weeks that has been fundraised for the last year. We're always calling and fundraising. That's just part of what running for office is, which kind of stinks. But, um, you know, that's just, it's just stressful. It's three weeks away and, you know, it feels like it's tomorrow. Um, but so those kind of deadlines are, you know, what are weighing on me right now. Thanks, Sam. And um, I'm going to give a shout out to Mr. Kerr's class because as you began that answer, they sent in a question about your biggest incentive to become a senator in your state. And I think you uh, addressed that in that answer about why uh, you chose to run in this campaign. Um, so we are pretty much out of time. I want to thank Sam and Nancy for being here today and answering these questions and turn it back to Dr. Maurer for a final wrap up. You're muted, Dr. Mara. Sorry, I forgot to unmute there. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Mr. Bell, for moderating that uh, the, the panel for us. And um, Nancy and Sam, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Your work inspires all of us in the Mercersburg community, and you certainly have given us lots to think about and how we all can make a difference in our communities. So thank you very much for, for being here. And thank you to everyone in the um, on campus and in our greater Mercersburg community for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you. Take care. Have a good day, Thanks, everyone. everyone.